Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 3rd, we're studying Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. Jesus comes down the mountain of his transfiguration in order to continue his journey to the cross. Along the way, he continues to bring the kingdom of God through his miracles and his teaching. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me again. Pastor Andrews, as we get started this morning, give us some context. We're jumping right into the middle of Matthew chapter 17. Where have we been? Where are we heading in Matthew's Gospel? That'll help us with the text today. Well, um, we are now moving into, have moved into, the third section in the greater context of Matthew's Gospel. You have the things at the very beginning, the first few chapters, that introduce who Jesus is to the hearer of the text. Then you move into the second section, which is basically chapters 4 through 16, that cover a lot of Jesus' ministry. And at chapter 16, verse 21, we have that big distinction as we move then into Jesus moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards the cross, the crucifixion, and joyously the resurrection uh, that we celebrate at the time of Easter. So as we we see this today, we have seen already Jesus' first prediction of his death. Now we've also been through the transfiguration account as the the wonderful event that happens that Peter, James, and John get to witness up on the mountaintop uh, as the Lord speaks and calls this his son. Um, listen to him. Uh, very key words there. Now they've come down from the mountain, um, and as they do, they come upon a crowd, and that gets us into our text for today. Let's go ahead and read that text. Then we're in Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. And when they, that's Jesus along with Peter, James, and John, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shackle. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. That's the text for today. Matthew chapter 17 verses 14 through 27. So, Pastor Andrews, the, the text starts a, a direct link to the previous text, to Jesus' crucifix, or, excuse me, transfiguration. They, they come down the mountain, there's a crowd. Here's a man who comes up to Jesus. He kneels before him and, and asks for help. What, what do we see here in this the man who comes to Jesus? There's the immediate note there of humility. I and mean, this is humility and also worship, if we want to look at it in that regard. He knows who Jesus is, and he is 
desiring. He's seeking help on behalf of his son. Um, it's a, a a very, as I said, it's a humble posture. He's not coming um, thinking that he deserves this. And we're going to see that in his request as he, he begins to speak. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Uh, he's not demanding it. He's making a petition. He's making a request just as we would do as we take our petitions to the Lord in prayer. So he's he's humble. He comes to Jesus. He kneels before him. The posture of worship. It's not the it's not the word for worship that we've seen elsewhere, but it is it is certainly a posture of worship to kneel before Jesus. And he asks for for mercy for his son. What's the significance of this man asking for mercy? It's hard to say exactly um, where he is in terms of his fullness of his faith. We get a little bit of that. We, I mean, this, this miracle gets picked up also in Mark and in Luke in their gospel accounts. Um, this is a man who's going to, in that conversation, end up saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, so he is, a, he is a follower of Christ in that regard. Um, but as we look at the, the request for mercy from the Lord, and we think of our of it from our own perspective here, we ask for God's mercy because we know we've sinned. Uh, we have fallen short of the glory that God expects of his people. Um, we have not done what he wanted us to do. And so when we request God's mercy, we're asking that he would spare us from the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. So even if the father doesn't have that fully figured out here, his request of Jesus is, good. It's a valid request. He is asking that Jesus would spare his son from further suffering in this ordeal that he's dealing with and has been dealing with for some time. Right. The the request from the man, if you if you look at it in the Greek there in 15, is Kyrie eleison, which is in, in Greek what is still sung in, in some churches, Lord have mercy. This is this is what we sing every weekend of the divine service, that the Lord would have mercy upon us. And I think I think here with this man, and I don't I don't think we would say that that he has sinned in some particular way, or his son has sinned in some particular way, such that this this affliction has come upon them, but but that the mercy, the cry for mercy, indicates a need, a lack. Some something has has happened in this man's life that he can't do anything about it. He's got a need. His son has a need, and there's nothing that that this man can do about it. There's nothing that the son can do about it. As it as it turns out, there's nothing the disciples have been able to do about it at this point. And so he comes to Jesus for mercy because this man can't do it. it. There's only one person who can help. And I think, I mean, I think for us today too, our request for mercy certainly, certainly is about this is, you know, we, our sins deserve this and worse. And so there's, there is that element of, of the sin that's there when we request mercy. But I think it's broader than that too, that when we look for God to have mercy upon us, it's a recognition that we are without and he has, and he must be the one to give. And so it's a, I think it's a very, I mean, we can, goodness, the, the prayer for mercy is, is such a broad prayer that we can use in, in almost any circumstance where there's a need. Lord have mercy is the right prayer for us to use. And, that, and that's what this guy's coming to Jesus with. That ends up being, I think, what we have called in the church, the idea of mercy work, is that we take mm. the things that the Lord has provided us with and we share those with others. Uh, and so you know, even the simple thing of just taking a moment out of your day to help your neighbor with a, ta- a chore or task that they have to accomplish, or the bigger picture of, of making donations of, of goods to help those who are in need, yeah, those things have, have that word mercy applied to them, and rightly so. Hmm. Right. So so that this man has come to Jesus for mercy, mercy for his son, what what's going on with the son? The way that the well, the way that the man describes the son's condition, at least at first, doesn't seem to to mention any um, any demonic work, and yet we know from later in the text that this is a demon at work. So, what take us into what the father says is wrong with his son, Pastor Andrews? Sure. Yeah, we know as you mentioned from both the result of the text and also from the other two accounts. This is definitely a case of, of demon possession. 
But in the Father's own words here recorded by Matthew, that doesn't show up. I mean, we hear he has seizures, he suffers, he falls into fire, he falls into water. Um, There's a little bit more going on in in those words, too. So he's having all these different episodes, the the seizures and and the convulsions that would come with those. Uh, It doesn't mention here how frequently he's dealing with that. Um, The suffering, though, that would accompany it. The, the falling into fire and the falling into water, those are the attempts of the demons to kill this child. Uh, it is an attempt to, as demons like to do, as the devil likes to do, uh, it's an attempt to undermine God's creation. There is, an, without a doubt, spiritual warfare going on in this text. The devil hates what the Lord has made and is seeking to destroy it. And so one of the devil's minions, one of his demons, is at work here in the life of this child, seeking to take his life from him. And so the father might not mention the demon possession here, but it's here. Um, and it's it's really the root of all of this. And we'll see that when we when we talk about the healing in, in verse 18. Right, yeah, the, the father focuses on the physical effects of the demonic possession, and and rightly so. I mean, as, as you pointed out, the devil would love nothing more than to take away those good gifts that the Lord has given, those good gifts that we might call daily bread, the needs of this body and life. And, and the devil delights to attack those things too. Now, certainly his ultimate aim is at our faith in Christ, but he's, he's quite content to, to hit our our earthly lives too. And that's what he's been doing to this boy, to this this father's son. And so the father rightly brings this need to Jesus. And and it's probably worth our time to spend a little bit of time thinking about this, Pastor Andrews, the devil's attacks against our lives and and the connection between the devil's attacks and and what we often just would think of as as sicknesses. What what can we say, and maybe what shouldn't we say as we think about those things? That's a great question, and it's one that I think for those of us living in the American uh, context and culture today is one we don't give as much thought as as Christians do in other cultures around the world. We have, in our very um, enlightened, to use that um, European phrase, mindset here, we've we've decided everything has to have a scientific explanation behind it. I I have to be able to use my reason to understand what's happening around me. And so demon possession to us is almost not even a real possibility. It's not a real thing. So as we look at, at the effect of the sickness of the demon possession on this child, yeah, the father is displaying, describing the the physical aspect, the stuff that he can see happen in his son. Uh, It is quite possible, I won't deny, that there are instances like this in our culture where we have simply decided to label something that is demonic as some kind of an illness. Um, And I don't have the expertise in that, so I'm not going to personally sit here and and try to nitpick and say which ones are which. Um, But we, we have a tendency to avoid that. Um, Part of that could be the devil's craftiness. We learn that about Satan and God's word that he is crafty. And as we think of someone who's had a lot of time to practice his temptations and his, his instilling of doubt into people we live in a society right now where really anything spiritual is kind of shrugged off or laughed at. So if the devil were to make a big deal out of demon possession in our land today, instead of pointing people away from God, it might have the opposite effect of pointing us to the idea that there actually is a God, that there is something spiritual going on beyond just the normal day-to-day mundane life that we live, I think that's changing. I think we're becoming more of a spiritual culture in in various ways as we see the rise of things like like Wicca and and other other such 
stuff. So it could be that we see a change in this, but for the time being, at least, I just don't think we we are looking for demon possession around us today. Hmm. No, I I don't think we are, and and I'm not. I, I think we want. I think for our purposes today, we should distinguish between demon possession, what we see here with this young boy, and demon affliction. I can't remember. I mean, demon possession, as you know, Pastor Andrews, comes up throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It, it really centers on Jesus' ministry that that you just get all these demons who are sort of swarming towards him to attack him. And so we, we've seen it before, and I don't remember who I had the conversation with. But but as those who, who have been made Christians— and, and who have been filled with the Holy Spirit and receiving his gifts, we shouldn't we shouldn't lead any Christian to think that that he or she will be possessed by a demon. But any Christian should expect that he or she will be attacked by a demon, attacked by by the devil in in whatever way that he can, he's going to attack. And you know, on the one hand, I don't know that we and you can feel free to respond to this. That we want to go around looking for possession. The word of God has been preached, even if it's being ignored in our context today. It's it's certainly being preached a lot. So I don't know that we should always go looking for demon possession. But you're right that we should not rule it out of hand as as if it couldn't happen, or or as if the devil's not active in in these situations. He certainly is, and and so we're right to make use of the gifts that God has given us, His Word. The gift of prayer, that that we would not try to fight on our own strength, but let, as as the hymn says, right, one little word can fell him. Let Christ do the fighting on our behalf through His gifts. And so, uh, we we definitely don't want to just rule it out of hand, but but recognize that the devil, as we've said several times, loves to attack our physical lives. And and when we see those attacks on our, our physical lives, whether that's a sickness or or whether that's that's trouble in, in the family or, or, or whatever other physical attacks we may face, that, that we would recognize the devil, the devil's delighting in this, and, and to pray against that and to trust the Lord's Word to deliver us. Uh, thoughts, Pastor Andrews? I think you're right. I mean, we have this battle against the devil going on all around us. And the devil's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things like God does. But he's a hard worker. um, And he's got tools at his disposal. And he'll work through things like sickness. He'll work through affliction. But I think he also works the other way as well. His, His tool belt is quite filled. And so he can use the comfort in our lives he can use the, the wealth that we experience in our culture. He can use a lot of different things to distract us, to discourage us, to attempt to lead us away from, from the gifts that Jesus would give to us. Um, we might think of the challenges that any of us might have as we wake up on a Sunday morning and think about going to the Lord's house to hear that we are forgiven and to receive Christ's body and blood upon our lips. Um, even as a pastor, we endure those those challenges. Um, so the devil is working, and this is why the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6 ended with the phrase, deliver us from the evil one. Um, our, our good petitions to the Lord request the Lord's help uh, in protecting us, keeping us safe in the midst of this life against the one who would seek to destroy this life. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, and and as as pastors, you know, we, we want to encourage people to make use of that that gift. As Christians, these are the gifts that the Lord has given us precisely for this task. And 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 if anyone, you know, wonders, is is Satan attacking me? Go to your pastor. Go go talk to him about about that thing. He's not gonna think you're crazy. And you're not crazy for thinking that. Go to your pastor. Let him preach to you the Word of God. Let him pray with you, too. I mean, the, Pastor Andrew, I bet, I bet you've got one of these pastoral care companions that, that CPH publishes, mm-hmm. and it's it's a wonderful resource, right? It's got it's got Bible verses and prayers for, for just about any situation that a person could face. So, you know, if, if you're listening and, and you wonder, 
I wonder what God's word says about that. Go talk to your pastor and, and let him let him look look through the word with you and pray with you. And and one of the sections is and there's some wonderful that again doesn't necessarily it's not saying that that a person's demon possessed, but just a recognition that the devil is attacking that the Lord protection we have. quick Israel care one of the prayers demonic affliction. We would pray, Almighty God, you justify the ungodly and desire not the death of the sinner. We humbly ask you to assist your child by your heavenly aid and to shield him always from the evil foe. Grant that he may not be separated from you by any temptation, but trusting in your mercy may serve you without ceasing through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Wonderful prayer for anyone who's, who's facing the attacks of the devil. And, and if we're honest, we know we always are. Go talk to your pastor if, 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 this, is, if this is you, and, and let him read the Word of God with you. Let him pray with you. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And, and trust God to keep his promises. Pastor Andrews, any, any more comments on, on the work of, of, of what I just said or the, the demonic possession before we move on with the text? No, well spoken. As, as your pastor, it, it's his job to be there for you with the words of the Lord to comfort you, to encourage you, to reassure you. Um, and so it's a good thing. Make use of the gift that the Lord has put into your midst in the word that he has given you. So this this man who's come to Jesus asking for mercy, well, he comes to Jesus at this moment because he's already come to the nine disciples who were not on the mountain of transfiguration. He's asked them to cast out the demons, and and they've not been able to do that. And and so Jesus hears this this man's request, and before he does something about it, you get this exclamation from Jesus. It's pretty pretty bold, might even say harsh. Is he talking to his disciples, Pastor Andrews, when he when he talks about the faithless and twisted generation? There's a lot of conversation around that, whether this is spoken to the Father, if it's spoken to the disciples, if it's spoken to the, the entirety of the crowd, as we had read verse 14, they came up to a whole crowd. It's seems most likely here to be a reference to his own disciples. Certainly not the father. Generation is more of a a plural kind of word. So the disciples were here. They were with the father. They were with the son. And even though Jesus had given them this authority way back uh, in chapter 10, that they could cast out demons, that they could heal the sick, they weren't able to do it this time. And so Jesus responds to them, and, and after the healing and his explanation, he's going to be talking about this idea of faith. So here, as he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, it does, it seems to fit that the disciples then are in mind as Jesus is making this statement. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Those are not just the, I guess, the insult to start it, but the questions, uh, the rhetorical questions he asks, those are painful. Uh, I can't imagine how the disciples uh, heard those words at that time. To, to be without faith, to not trust in the Lord, to twist his original designs and intents by trying to do things on our own. And that's what this is going to get at, how we're how were Jesus' disciples attempting to help this family? What were they trusting in? Um, and it wasn't the faith that they had that they were trusting in. So they were trying to do some something here by their own power, by their own means. And so Jesus asked these questions, um, and it's again, we're, we're moving towards Jerusalem here. How long am I to be with you? Well, uh, just a matter of maybe a couple more months at this point. How long am I to bear with you? Now, those things can actually point us to what Jesus did for us on the cross. That that word bear or burden um, is one that we use a lot to, to talk about Christ's crucifixion as he bears our sins upon his shoulders and he takes them to the cross. That in his death and his resurrection, all of this changes. Our sins are forgiven and we have this promise we have this hope of a resurrection unto new life um, that comes to us in and through Jesus. We know he is forever with us now. We know he forever bears us up. So 
a rhetorical question, but at the same time, um, it's kind of a beautiful question too. How long am I to bear with you? Well, the Lord is going to to bear us up. The Lord is going to bear us up. He's going to do something right here, right now. He he tells the disciples, "Bring him here to me, so that he can actually do something for this for this young boy who's possessed by a demon." And we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU, looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 17. We're going to take that short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, March 3rd. We're studying Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 27 with Pastor Steve Andrews of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' response. He speaks to his disciples rather harshly because they have not trusted his promise. They've, they've missed what he's been talking about with his death and his resurrection. They're, they're trusting in their own merits to do something here, and they've been unsuccessful. And so Jesus tells, he commands, that the boy be brought here to him. And how does Jesus answer this man's prayer for mercy there in verse 18? He simply speaks, as we have seen God do so much throughout the history of creation, uh, thankfully through his word and the scriptures that we have, God's word is efficacious. It does stuff. And so here Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, has been portrayed as one whose voice has authority. We can look back to chapter 4. Uh, in the wilderness, the devil even acknowledged in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus' word had power. Jesus could, according to the devil, turn a stone into bread. Or in verse 10, Jesus' word speaks and the devil is forced to flee. Um, we see the wholeness of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 is another example. This idea that the crowds had heard the teaching of Jesus and they were just, they were astonished. He taught with authority, unlike the teachers they were used to hearing. So this word of Jesus does something. It's not the same as the word of those we're used to hearing. And so Jesus simply speaks, and the demon is cast out. The Father's prayer is answered. His request is made made true. It has happened. Um, the, and the language Matthew uses for us, Jesus rebukes the demon, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So all the things the father had seen, the attempts of this boy uh, because of the demon to take his own life, the uh, seizures, and whatever physical ramifications that this child had, they're gone as soon as the demon is out of him. Jesus has cast out the demon. He has made this boy well again. Jesus' ability to speak has done this. And that, that fact, to see the, the Word of Jesus do what he says here, makes the situation with the disciples, I think, a bit ironic, because the demon has responded instantly to Jesus' Word, and, and now the boy has been healed completely, but you've still got this nagging question, well, yeah, well, what, a, what about the disciples? And, and God bless the disciples. They, as the text has continued, you know, they, they seem to be more and more clueless. Now, they come to Jesus with a question, and it's honest enough, right? I mean, I, I would be wondering it too, because they've done this before, and they want to know why. Why, why, didn't, why weren't we able to this time? How does Jesus respond to that question, Pastor Andrews? Right, and it is a fair question. In Matthew 10, Jesus gave them the commission and the authority, as we talk about Jesus' authority, he gave it to them. And yet this time it doesn't work. And so Jesus is talking to them, responding to them, um, 
and this conversation that we get in verse 20, I would think probably causes confusion and misunderstanding for, for a lot of Christians today. Um, you could not do this thing. You could not cast out this, this demon because of your little faith. I, we should probably note there that the phrase is still little faith. They have faith. Jesus isn't saying that they're out and they're not part of his kingdom any longer. Um, but their faith was was not strong in this instance. And then he talks about a mustard seed. So you get the whole uh, parallel with chapter 13, the parable of the mustard seed, which is getting at the idea that something so small can become something so large. So here we have this this idea that Jesus is talking about even a small faith. And if you you will just say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, then nothing will be impossible for you. What a statement that that is. But then as Christians here today, we're scratching our heads saying, well, I've never been able to make a mountain move. I've I've never been able to cast out a demon. I've never healed a sick person. What does this say about my faith? Is my faith not strong? Is And so we get these doubts, I think, that come at us from the way Jesus responds to the disciples. So I want to look at that kind of, I guess, in two different ways then. First is 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 what it means to the disciples and then also to us. So for the disciples, the idea here is that their faith would have been to trust in the Lord, to trust in his word, that he will do what needs to be done to care for us and to not put our trust, not put their trust in themselves and in their own works, but rather trusting in him and in his works. And as as you would get into Mark's account of this, Jesus' conversation with the disciples talks not just about faith, but also about the idea of prayer. And when we pray, we are trusting that the Lord will hear our prayer. He'll hear our petition like he did for the, the father here, um, or the father of this boy, and that he'll respond and he'll answer and he'll do what we've asked him for in prayer. And so the disciples here, they struggled to have that trust. Um, and this is something that is an ongoing thing in the in the gospel accounts when it comes to the disciples. This is one of three times that Jesus is going to predict his own death. The first one came in the previous chapter in 16. The next one's going to come in chapter 20. And you might remember the response that Jesus receives when he predicts his own death the first time. The disciple Peter rebukes Jesus and says something along the lines of, may this never be, we won't let this happen to you, Lord. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter. So the the disciples lacking this trust and simply following Jesus, listening to his word and believing that his word is going to do what it is that he has said it will do. Um, and then for for us today, I think my my reflection on Dr. Gibbs's commentary on the on the Gospel of Matthew is helpful in this. He encouraged us to look at the context of this account in Matthew. What is it that the disciples here have just attempted to do? What is it that they failed to do? Um, this statement of Jesus that nothing is going to be impossible for you if you have faith is connected to what Jesus had given the disciples to do. They had the authority to cast out this demon, but then they didn't succeed in casting it out. So Jesus is telling them that of the things that he has given them, the authority he has given them, as long as they remain in their faith, as long as they're trusting in his promises and in his word, then these things will will happen. Uh, the, the things that they have been given to do will be carried out. And so for us as Christians today, we think of, well, what what is it that the Lord has given us to do? Uh, in the context of Matthew's gospel, we have been called to be salt to the earth, light of the world. We have been called to baptize and to teach all nations. We have been called to endure in the midst of times of trouble. We have been called to not be afraid as we would confess our uh, our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our enemies. These kinds of things, by faith and trust in the Lord, these things will not be impossible for us. 
So a couple of thoughts there, Pastor Andrews. I think that's a very helpful explanation that you've laid out, both for the disciples and for us today. Concerning the disciples, I think you're absolutely right to point us to the passion predictions that Jesus has made already and that he will continue to make as, as one of the very important things that's happened between Matthew chapter 10, when, when Jesus gave this authority, and, and we learned that they were able to do this at some point, that they were they had cast out demons in the past. But between Matthew 10 and then Matthew 17 stands that passion prediction that they've totally missed. And, and they've, they've, they just don't, nobody gets it until, until the very end. And, and so that, that lack of faith in what Jesus has said concerning his death and resurrection, I think is a big part of what Jesus is getting at here, especially when he talks about the faith of the grain of the mustard seed. Because as you said, the, the thing about the mustard seed is that it grows. It may be small, but it grows. And the disciples' faith hasn't, hasn't grown. They've heard Jesus speak, and they haven't believed what he said. That's why the Father had to come along in the mountain of transfiguration and say to those three, listen to him, right? Listen to what he's telling you. And, and they're not listening. So there's that, that lack of faith in, in Jesus' death and resurrection that they're missing at this point, and that's distracting them from all of Jesus' word. So they haven't, they haven't been able to cast out this demon because they're trusting in themselves rather than in what Jesus has said. And about what you've laid out about us today and the matter of, of well, what, is, what does faith even do? Faith does not look at itself and, and think, is my faith big enough? Rather, faith focuses on what Christ has said and who Christ is for us. And, and I, think, I think that's where sometimes we would, or we would see, and, and we ourselves probably would, misuse this passage and just yank it out of its context and think, I need to be out there moving mountains. And, and if I'm not moving mountains, then something's wrong with me. And, and that's not the right use of this verse, I think, is what you're saying, Pastor Andrews. Right. I, I don't think most of us would be at the point of saying that this means I need to be able to move mountains. But I think most of us would take this, again, out of context and think that it means that we should be able to do some pretty incredible stuff, um, kind of above and beyond the the regular simple callings of our vocations that we live out day by day. So, Pastor Andrews, as the the text moves on, we get another one of these Jesus passion predictions. Of sometimes this is the second really formal one that he gives here. What do we see in verses twenty two and twenty three in terms of what Jesus says is going to happen to him, and then how the disciples respond? Good, and it, it's important for us to see these things within their context as well. Um, our English translations tend to break up our text that we're reading together today into three separate sections. You've got the healing, you've got the passion prediction, and then you've got this temple tax thing coming up in just a bit. But Matthew has these things together for a reason. So we're coming off of verse 20, and we're moving into the next uh, section on the passion prediction, and they're connected. So the idea that a mustard seed would fall into the earth and die uh, in order to grow, as is kind of talked about with the parable, and this is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful seed that falls into the earth. Uh, it's not an accident that Matthew includes the, the predictions both before and after this statement of Jesus' death and his resurrection, that this one man, by his death, is going to forgive the sins of every person who has ever lived. By his death, billions of people are brought into this kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, as we come into verse 22, they haven't reached Jerusalem yet. That's where they're aiming. That's where they're pointing. Galilee is still up in the north, so they have to move through Samaria still um, in order to get down to Jerusalem. But here they are, it's still, we'll maybe get a time frame from the temple tax thing in just a bit, but they're still about a couple of months away from the crucifixion. And Jesus is once again predicting that it's going to happen. He uses that phrase, son of man, will be delivered into the hands of men, be killed, be raised again. I mentioned before the, the first response to the first prediction was complete denial from the disciples that this won't happen. Now the second prediction, they don't respond that way any longer. So there is, there actually is some growth here. 
um, I guess we could say it that way. They instead they are, as the ESV puts it, greatly distressed. They don't refute him, but the idea still troubles them quite a bit. And even as you get into the actual events of Holy Week, they are still quite distressed over it. They don't understand it. They are grieved uh, at the time of Christ's death on the cross to the point where they fear they're next. They hide in a house. Uh, They don't want to be killed. All of this is happening, and they don't understand. You know, we often give the, the ladies credit for going to the tomb and being the ones to find the risen Jesus, but they were going to the tomb on Easter morning to anoint his body with oils and perfumes so it wouldn't smell as bad. I mean, it was part of the burial custom. They weren't going for a risen Lord. They were going to to treat the dead. So they just don't, the disciples as a whole just don't get it um, at this point in the text. Um, And it's not until, I might be fair, it's not not until Pentecost that they they truly grasp everything that just happened. Yeah, I think you're right about that. That it's it's on the day of Pentecost where things click for them. That that's where the the Spirit comes and and as Jesus says, He will right recalls all these things for them and, and and He puts it all together for them so that then they they start preaching and and they won't be quiet speaking about Jesus and what He's done. These very things that that He's told them, and and this is this is key to see Jesus speaking these things ahead of time. He knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's telling his disciples so they'll know it. And and then on the day of Pentecost, right, they will preach these things boldly. Right now, there's only distress. They they cannot wrap their minds around the idea that that this man that they believe is the Lord, rightly so, but they, they just can't put the death, the suffering into that picture, much less the resurrection. Right, which is always a part of, of these predictions, and and for the disciples, it, it just they don't know what to do with it. They're they're distressed by it. Uh, praise be to God <laughs> that that our Lord is patient and continues to teach these men, so that one day He will send them, as you've said, Pastor Andrews. So we've got ten minutes left here in the morning, and, and the way that this text ends is just one of those really. Uh, I don't know if I can say this about. Can I say? Can I call it quirky? Pastor, is it okay to call God's word quirky? This is one of those texts it, it, where yeah. it's just like, where did where did this come from? So, so before we get to the the part where you know, where did that come from, the fish and the the coin in his mouth, you've got this matter of of the temple tax, and they're in the north, as you pointed out, they're in they're in Capernaum, they're in the the area of Galilee, and, and there's this matter of a tax that's brought up to Peter. What what's going on here? What's the background that we need to know to understand what's going on in this text? So first, yeah, we have them in the city of Capernaum, which is up there. It's in Galilee. It's where Jesus has spent a good amount of his time over the last few years. Um, I think the study Bible at one point calls it his almost his home base, his place of operations. The, the temple tax here, this two drachma tax that is instructed of, this is connected to the the temple, it's connected to the, the old sacrificial system. If you read Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, you learn all of the different sacrifices that the people of God were supposed to be bringing to the temple for the priest to sacrifice on the, the altar of burnt offerings. It was a it was a big ordeal. And also then the care for the, the actual physical building, the space would have required funds. And so for... I don't know how long, but for a time, this tax had been in place for them in order to do those things, to care for the, the temple, to care for perhaps the priests even, and um, to be a part of that whole system. And so by this point in history, what we we have suggested um, is that this is a Jewish tax. This is not Rome, but Rome is okay with it as the governing authority. It is a tax that is optional, which is part of the collector's question that they ask there in verse 24 to Peter. And it's also a tax that is collected roughly a month before we get to the Passover um, account and the celebrations of the people. They ought to have the temple, I guess, in in good shape for their, their annual big celebration. So um, the tax collectors have come here. They're 
talking to Peter. They're seeking payment, um, and they they ask if Jesus is going to pay this tax or not. I think it's an interesting little note for Matthew to record this for us because Matthew was a tax collector. This was his job, although I think yeah. I've always assumed he worked for the, the the Roman Empire in that role rather than a temple tax. I guess I could be wrong on that. Um, so the tax is two drachmas, which is approximately then half of a shekel. We'll see that with Jesus' miracle in just a moment. Uh, from what I could read, a drachma is roughly equal to a single day's pay or a denarius. And so this is uh, every man, every Jewish male each year was expected to pay this two days pay in order to support the work of the temple. Right. Yeah, this this tax then connects a a faithful Israelite at this time and his family with with the work of the temple. And there there is some Old Testament background to this. It's not like they just totally made this up or something like that. In the book of Exodus chapter 30, there's a tax that, that is used to support the work of the tabernacle. And then in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 10, you get the those who had returned from exile reinstituting this, this tax in order to, to support the work of the temple. By this time, it appears that the tax was raised from the ta- time of Nehemiah, which is probably typical of taxes, and it goes back to more what what you see in the book of Exodus. This money that's going to support the work of the temple, and that that background is pretty important to understand the interaction. So the question is asked to Peter, does Jesus pay this? He says yes. And then Peter goes into the house, and before Peter even has a chance to address this with Jesus, Jesus brings it up to him. What is Jesus saying to Peter? What's the point of his little... Uh, example that he brings up? Essentially, he brings up taxes in general. So regardless of if this is for a temple or for the Roman Empire, whoever this tax is for, Peter, who who do kings of this earth tax? Uh, as we think then of a tax, even in our own country today, the the ones who are in charge are not the ones paying the tax. The tax is being paid, as Peter knows and we know, the tax is being paid by the, the rest of the people. Um, it raises money for for whatever the purpose of the, the kingdom is. The king himself doesn't pay it. And if the king isn't paying it, as Jesus is going to say in just a moment, um, his sons aren't going to pay it either. It's not the, the royal family paying this tax. It's everyone else. Uh, and so Jesus here is, if you want to look at this in, in the general term, Jesus is the king of the earth. Everything belongs to him anyway, so he doesn't owe a tax. Uh, and Peter is his disciple then, as a son of that kingdom, and would not owe the tax either. But as we get a little more specific with this being a a temple tax that supported the temple, that supported the work of the sacrificial system from the Old Testament, as Jesus is about to go in, in a month's time, I guess we should say, um, to die on the cross, to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sin, the temple tax is no longer necessary. As he said to the woman at the well that the time was coming when they would no longer worship God on this mountain or in the temple, um, that Old Testament sacrificial system is not going to stand anymore. Jesus' sacrifice is good enough. So Jesus doesn't need to pay the temple tax. He's paying it with his own blood. But he's going to take care of this anyway with this, as you said, quirky, this odd little, um, I guess we could call it a miracle that we find right here at the end of the chapter. Right. Before we talk about that, this is what you've been laying out is the main point, I think, that that Jesus is telling Peter he's exempt from this temple tax because Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of everything happening at the temple. Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. And and with that sacrifice, which is what he's just gotten done talking about, the, the work of the temple is now fulfilled. It's complete in Jesus. And so the temple tax doesn't apply anymore because these Jesus is the Son of God, and in him his disciples are sons of God as well. And that's the the really amazing thing that Jesus is bringing out here in this. And then, and then, yeah, there's, there's this, so Jesus provides though, in order not to offend, as he, as he says, in order to, 
And, and maybe we should understand this, or at least this is the way that I've always understood it. Jesus isn't going to his passion yet. It's coming soon, but he's not going there yet. And so that he doesn't stir things up toward that end at this time, he goes ahead and pays the tax anyway, and he does it in this rather odd way. And I think you're right to call it a miraculous way. What what does he do? And, and Pastor Andrews, what what do you make of that? <laughs> well, he, he makes use of Peter's old vocation. Uh, Peter was a, a fisher, uh, fisherman who was turned into a fisher of men. Uh, and Jesus sends him back out to the waters to to cast a, a line and to catch a fish. And he even tells him the first fish that you catch, when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Uh, shekel is worth four of these drachmas, so it's good enough to cover two men's tax. So, Peter, you go catch that fish, and it'll cover your tax, and it'll cover Jesus' tax. And that's the end of the chapter. And it just it just ends that way. Um, one of the things I, I think about when I look at this text is, what are the tax collectors thinking? How much of this did they see? You know, did, did they follow Peter to the, the water and watch him catch this fish? Did they, did they see him pull that shekel out of the fish? Uh, it just gives me a little humor to think about. Matthew obviously doesn't tell us. <laughs> Pastor Andrews, we have just about a minute left here on the morning. Summarize things for us, wrap things up as we conclude the text today. So we've got these three different sections, but they really do fit together. Uh, Jesus has just come down from the transfiguration. I guess in the way we could phrase it, his face is pointed towards Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows what he needs to do, but he's still trying to teach and encourage his disciples and in their faith, teaching them as the transfiguration does to trust in him, to listen to him, to know that his word is enough for us. Uh, And so we see that throughout this text in the way that he heals and casts out the demon in the way that he interacts with his disciples, and even in the temple tax, his word is good enough. Peter, go catch a fish. You'll find a shekel. Peter finds a shekel as he catches a fish and pays a tax. Um, these things are all interconnected as we look at the idea that Jesus is going to die on the cross for us. He is our Lord, um, and he is our Savior, as the, the gospel begins with back in chapter 1. Pastor Steve Andrews is the pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. Pastor Andrews, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you as well. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.